How, how are we doing today? Everybody doing well? I'm glad to see there's a little space here today. The first service, I think with the time change, was, uh, was pretty claustrophobic, to be honest with you. All right, well, we're uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is found in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5 to 7. Um, and the driving theme that we've been learning about of the Sermon on the Mount is what? Boy? kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is exactly what it says it is. It's, it's the realm of heaven. It's God's space uh, breaking into our space, heaven breaking into earth, and, and making that space heaven. And I mean, what do you think about when you think of heaven? I mean, heaven is a place where there's no suffering, no pain, uh, no death or everything is as God intended it to be for the simple fact that God is present, God is there. And that is exactly what the kingdom of heaven is, uh, which is why the kingdom of heaven is more than a message. I mean, we read in our gospels how Jesus went into all the villages and synagogues and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and usually the verses following that, and they brought to him all who were sick and diseased, uh, those who were demonized, and, and Jesus healed them. He is bringing heaven to earth. He's, he's making the world uh, the way God intended it to be when he made the world. Um, and so the story of the Bible, the goal of the Bible, is not us leaving earth for a place called heaven. It's actually about God who leaves heaven and brings heaven to earth. And I know this troubles some people because when they hear this, they say, well, what about my dad who, who, who died? Who, is, is he not in a place called heaven right now? Well, well, Paul says that when we die, we leave our body to be with Christ, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story, which is in the last two chapters of your Bible, is heaven coming down to earth. The kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's how our Bible ends. And uh, I don't know if that excites you. It should, shouldn't it? And if that doesn't excite you, think about our present reality right now. God wants to bring heaven to earth through us. And how's God going to do that? Well, that's why we have the Sermon on the Mount. When we become this sermon, when we become this message, as our theme verse says, anyone who claims to be in Christ must learn to walk as Jesus walked. That's what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to walk as Jesus walked. And when we do that, we are bringing heaven to earth. So our text today is Matthew 7, 1 to 6. And uh, it, it, it begins with these words of Jesus. It's a command, an imperative. Do, do not judge. As I was thinking about this imperative this week, um, I was thinking about the time in which we live um, and there are two things that are, that are going on today, or at least that I see going on as it relates to this. Uh, first of all, how many people uh, today actually uh, 
would say amen to what Jesus is saying here. Do not judge. Um, I mean, we, we live in a time when we desperately want to believe that I'm okay, you're okay, everyone is okay, um, our, our, our world is okay, even when it's not okay. That's part of this postmodern condition. Uh, the, the only virtue that, 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 that we have left is the one of acceptance, that everything's okay. And, and, and that is the spirit of our time. But, but while that all is going on, uh, have you noticed the prevalence of people judging people? Just pronouncing aggress- aggressive, sometimes severe judgments on other people. At least in my short lifetime, it's never, we've, we've never been so judgmental, so critical of everyone, everything. Look at this PowerPoint. Humanity ends at the border of your tribe. I think if we think about that, that, that begins to explain a little bit why people are judgmental. Um, we, we all have a tribe that we belong to, and a lot of times humanity ends at the border of our tribe, um, which is why it's so easy for us to be critical of anyone who's outside of our tribe, of people who don't agree with us, uh, who don't think like us, who don't live like us, who have different backgrounds, different beliefs, worldviews, religions. I remember when Libby and I first started dating, and she grew up as a good Baptist, and I grew up as a not-so-good CRC person. Um, and we started going, going to each other's church, and I remember when I went to her church, I was shocked how they just so easily went out to eat after church. <laughs> like, you guys get to go out to eat after church and spend money? And, uh, like, what else do you do? You go to the movies, too? And <laughs> Come on, someone else have that growing up or not? It was just me. Um, but then she came to my church, and she was literally appalled. You think she's appalled at? After church. <laughs> All the guys. I mean, I get in their little circle and smoke their cigarettes. She says, as a Baptist, like she had no category for that. I'm like, that's what Dutch people do. We're only like one generation removed from our motherland. I mean. (laughs) But Christians have a reputation of, of being a tribe that is very judgmental, very critical. I think Jesus' words need to hit home a little bit when he says, do not judge. What does Jesus mean by that? Does this mean we never make judgments? Does this mean we never discern? That we actually become like our postmodern culture around us and just agree that really the only virtue left is to just accept everything? If you read the Bible, you'll, you'll, you'll see that it never encourages a thoughtless faith that quite the contrary, it causes us to think, it causes 
calls us to think critically, demands it. How many times do you read phrases like this, judge for yourselves, or think about such things, or God saying to us, come, let us reason together. Or how about some of these texts, which are just the tip of the iceberg that are found all over the Bible, but uh, God describing the men from Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. God elevated the that, that tribe for, for being people who could discern the time in which they lived. Jesus scolds his disciples for not being like the men of Issachar. Um, in Luke chapter 12, he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves? What is right? What is wrong? Romans 12. Verse 2, I mean, Paul has, has this throughout his letters, things like, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. This is, this is a thinking person's deal. Then you'll be able to test and approve, to discern what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Or what about this one from Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, and that solid food is, is the very words of God, who, people that feed on that, who by constant use have trained themselves to discern between good and evil. The Bible recognizes that some things are good and some things are evil, and we as Christians are called to discern to be students of our time, students of our world, and, and namely students of the text. I mean, look at the parable Jesus tells in verse six. I was almost gonna go around this um, for, for sake of time because it almost is a sermon within itself, but Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pegs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you pieces. I mean, Jesus is saying, don't judge, <laughs> but then he's calling people pigs and dogs. And I understand that that pig and dog could be a potential derogatory term in our day, and it kind of was in Jesus' day as well, but that's why you have to understand it in the context of this mini parable that he is telling. Uh, the pearl, what is the pearl? The pearl is this holy thing. It's the pearl of great price that he talks about in another parable. It's the kingdom of heaven. And here's Jesus' main point. It's not to call someone a dog or a pig. It, it, it's simply to say a, a dog or a pig cares nothing about a pearl, an actual pearl. It can't even really discern the difference between a stone and a pearl let alone the fact that a, a dog and a pig is, is pretty much governed by their stomach and the only thing that's of value to them is what they can put in their mouth that is tasty to them. 
And here's what happens when the kingdom of heaven breaks into a person's life. They are brought into a whole new realm, a whole new sphere where they have spiritual eyes now, where they can see things, spiritual realities that they could never see before. And they can discern that's the kingdom of heaven, that isn't. And it's not even just to know the difference between that, but it's discernment on on, on when do I take this pearl of the kingdom of heaven and when do I give it away and when do I not? When do I just hold it to myself? And I feel that tension every time I have to speak to a whole group of people. Because at some point in the game, I just know there are gonna be people that are gonna wanna, they're just gonna have to get up and walk out. And it's not because they have to do something out there, but it's just like, I want no more. And Jesus says, be careful about just throwing your pearls to just people who can't see or discern that. But there's a very fine line between spiritual discernment and judging. And look at what Jesus says in verses three to four. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye, how can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Now, Jesus is the master teacher because he doesn't just throw propositions at us, but he paints these wonderful pictures and he uses these images. And the image that he's using here uh, would be one from that world that I'm sure when Jesus is saying this, they're all busting out laughing. Uh, Jesus' dad, Joseph, was a carpenter. Every son in that culture would learn their father's trade. And so roofs in that day were made of mud, clay, and sticks, soft material. It needed this big, huge wood beam to hold it all together. This is the imagery Jesus is using. He's like, how can you notice a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, when you have this huge beam, this plank of wood coming out of your own. I think most of us have been in this uncomfortable situation where we're with someone and they have something in their eye. Uh, In our family, we call it poop. some people call it sleep, but Bennett, get the poop out of your eyes. You're going to school. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, we're just that way, okay? Obviously, that's not that funny to you guys, but, um, but, but it has to come out, right? That's a good thing to say, I think, to my son, is get, get, get your eyes clean. It, it becomes a whole other thing when it's your nose, and, and, you know, like the speck now is coming out of your nose. Um, I mean, I remember when I was in Israel years ago, and I was on Masada, and I ran into another tour guide that I hadn't seen in in, in a while. He was a good friend of mine, and to my horror, I mean, he just had something massive coming out of his nose. (laughs) And Libby was there with me, and it creates that situation. Do I say something? Do I not say anything? And I went the route of not saying anything, but then as he walked away, I thought, man, he is walking back to his group right now, and imagine if that was me, and I was going back to my group, and it's like, oh, I should have said something. And we're just talking about that stuff. Imagine now talking about things moral and spiritual. 
Because I think our culture today, what it oftentimes calls love because it's so accepting is really just cowardice. I think it was cowardly on my part to not say anything to him. It was easier. And see, what our culture sometimes calls mean is oftentimes courageous love. I'll be the first to say it. I need brothers and sisters in my life who love me enough to say, Rod, you know what? You might need to remove that from your life. That's love. That's why Jesus even here uses the word brother. This is what brothers and sisters do. We see the specs. And to be consistent with Jesus' imagery or metaphor here, we don't just call them out and other people, but we're actually the ones who help remove them. Think about what it takes to remove a speck from your eye. I mean, the eye might be the most sensitive part of our body. I dare you right now to touch it. Touch your eye. And allowing someone else's hands in your eye, you're only going to do that with someone that you absolutely trust. And this is precisely Jesus' point. It's not so much about us just being people that remove specks from other people's eyes, but it's more about are we a trustworthy people who have earned the right to say and to remove specks from each other's eyes. So what Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 to 2, his brothers and sisters. Again, he's using that language. It's just not something we do as strangers. This is what we do in-house with family members. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It doesn't say be quiet. We move into that. But with gentleness, Watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted and carry, in so doing, carry each other's burdens, for in this way, you are fulfilling the Torah. I want to be a people like that. For the simple reason, I know how much I need people in my life, brothers and sisters, who are willing to do that. That is loving. I was thinking about Nathan this week when, when, when Nathan had to go to his good friend David. And David, David's sin now is becoming public. And the sin of, think about this, he had an affair with his best friend's wife. He was so scared that people were gonna find out that he killed his best friend to keep it hidden. And Nathan is seeing this in his friend's life, and he goes to David, and you know, now we're dealing with a lock. He could have slammed him. He could have smoked him. But you know what Nathan did? He told this creative parable that got David to be so disgusted by the sin of the person in the story that all Nathan then had to say to him is, David, you are that man. And I bet he had tears in his eyes when he said it. Or think about Jesus. I know he's not confronting someone in this situation, but, but, but it shows the kind of people that we need to be when, when he 
goes to visit Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had just passed away. And, and Martha is the first to come out and say, Jesus, like, where were you? And in that moment, Jesus just speaks truth to her. Because that's what Martha needs. In that moment, she needs to know the truth. I'm the resurrection of life. Don't worry, Martha. But Jesus walks a little further and now comes to Mary. And Mary's just crumpled on the ground crying. Jesus just gets right down with her and he just weeps. And we need to be a people that are about both truth and tears and, and we know when someone needs truth and we know when someone needs tears because if we're all truth, we're probably judgmental and mean and if we're all tears, we're probably a bit cowardly. Now, as important as this is, this still is not Jesus' main point here. His main point is not what we see in others. His main point is what we see in ourselves. Can we see the log? I think it's so easy to see the mess in our messed up world and to be so critical and judgmental towards messed up people, messed up families, messed up ideologies, messed up lifestyles. But can you see the mess right now that's in your own life? The mess that's in your own heart? Can you acknowledge it? Can you see it? And see, as we, are, as, as we become a people who discern good from evil, uh, we, we have to know what Alexander Solzhenitsyn eloquently said. He said that line that divides good and evil, it doesn't run through neighborhoods where the good people live on one side of the neighborhood and the bad people live on the other side of the neighborhood. He said it didn't run through politics where there are good people on this side of the aisle and there are bad people on the other side of the aisle. He said, no, that line of good and evil runs through every human heart. There's evil in all of us. Can you see it? We're so good at seeing it in other people, and we're so quick then to, to judge other people based on, on what we see in other people, uh, which is why Jesus says, do not judge. Do not judge them. Like the word judge here is, is pretty strong. It means to condemn someone or to be really critical or, or even to write someone off is, do you do this with people? Are you quick to judge? Are you quick to condemn? Are, are, are you quick to write people off? Are you highly critical? And there are a lot of critics today. A lot of people who posture themselves as the experts, who think they're right about everything, who need to be right about everything, and then they pronounce their judgments and their critiques with such confidence and sometimes with venom. Think about all the new labels that, that, that we have these days at our disposal to, to pronounce our judgments. I mean, everything, and these are, these are words that I didn't hear growing up, but you hear them all the time now. Words like, oh, they're so unhealthy. Oh, they're so dysfunctional. Oh, the popular word right now is, oh, that person's so toxic. Or how about these labels? Racist, Nazi, sexist, misogynist. We just throw these things out, attach them to people. 
such confidence and such ease, hardly knowing what the words themselves mean or hardly knowing the people that we're labeling them with. And I'll tell you the sad thing with this. Because these words are so overused today, they are coming to mean nothing. And there's gonna come a time when we're gonna need these words to mean something and they're gonna be worthless. Do you know that being judgmental, overly critical, is a result of some deep-rooted character traits? The big one is probably insecurity. Most critical people are oftentimes most insecure. Just know that next time you're around a critical person, you can think they're probably insecure about something. The reason why insecure people are, are quick to point out the wrong in others is because they know there's something very wrong with themselves that they want to keep hidden. So their judging of others is a form of self-protection. It's a way to mask their own character deficiencies. It's also a very subtle way of, of, of exalting oneself. We, we, even though we're not directly exalting ourselves, we kind of are every time we slam someone. I mean, think about what it takes to actually judge someone. Because there's a lot that goes into that equation. Think about an actual judge. An actual judge is someone who holds a position of power. Um, he, he's over other people. So every time we judge, we are assuming a place of power, of being over another person and thinking or presuming that we're better than them. Like if I say, I can't believe you just did that, or I can't believe you just said that, do you know what I'm also saying? To say that? I would never do that. I'd never say that. And now we know what we're talking about. Now we got to the sin underneath the sin. It's pride. It's the pride of self-righteousness. It actually takes self-righteousness to put ourselves in that place of power where we think we're better than someone where we can judge them. And Jesus will have none of this. And when you go through the Gospels and you look at who Jesus condemned, it should shock us. Uh, first of all, who he didn't condemn. He didn't condemn Romans, he didn't condemn Greeks. He didn't condemn pagans. He didn't condemn irreligious people. He didn't condemn prostitutes. He didn't condemn the people with labels in his day. There's one group of people that Jesus condemned, and it was the self-righteous Pharisees. God, I thank you, said this, praise the Pharisee, that I'm not like those people, and I don't do those things. And I am this kind of person. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Nazi. Thank you that I'm not toxic. Jesus, I mean, he just, he, he spanked that so hard. And not only don't even just look at who Jesus condemned, but how about who Jesus stood with? Read the Gospels. He stood with the people of his day who had the labels. He stood with sinners. 
He says in Luke's gospel, he says, I came eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. That's not what I am. I am a friend of sinners. That's who I am. There's a scene in Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of Christ, that to me is one of the ultimate scenes in any movie. It's when they bring out that woman who was caught in adultery, and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And Jesus just gets right down next to her, and he just starts doodling in the sand, almost like he's waiting. Is anyone going to stand with this woman? Anybody? He just keeps doodling, doodling, doodling. And then the text says he stood. Why is he standing? Because of exactly what Mel Gibson depicts in his movie, when Jesus stands, he, gets, he takes his finger and he draws a line in the sand. The sand and rocks are literally bouncing off the ground as he's putting it deep into the ground to tell all those self-righteous Pharisees, I don't stand with you guys. Here's the line. I stand with her. He stands with the sinners. The people have labels. Or how about Stephen? Condemned by the Jewish Supreme Court to be stoned for being a follower of Jesus. And I love it, as his, as his accusers literally are stoning him, the text says that, that the heavens peeled open and there he saw Jesus. And Jesus, the text always depicts him as sitting at the right hand of God the Father, but Stephen doesn't see him as sitting. Stephen says, I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Again, why is Jesus standing? Because the only court that matters the judge of the universe is not condemning him, standing with him. Do you know that? Because if our hearts are to be healed, healed, Jesus is not into behavior modification. He's not into reformation. He's into transformation, which is why political correctness and all the things our culture wants to throw at this, they're, they're band-aids. They're outside in. Jesus wants to go inside out. He wants to get right to our heart. So I can't just say, hey, let's stop being critical of other people. Let's stop comparing ourselves with others. Let's stop gossiping and listening to gossipers. Let's stop uh, believing second-hand, third information and, and these first-impression assumptions about other people or how they look to us on appearance. Let's stop stereotyping people. We need to be healed. And just think about this for a moment. I don't have to make a case this morning that our world's kind of messed up. This messed up world is God's world. He made it. It's his artwork. If anyone has a right to judge with severity anything in our world, it's God. 
But look at him. In Christ, he enters the mess by becoming a man who preaches, do not judge. And then look at his life. And then you read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the next verse that we often don't get to. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And how is God going to do that? This is why we call it gospel. The judge, the one who has the right to judge, literally left his seat and became the accused. Think if you saw that in a courtroom. All our specs, all our logs, all our mess, all our sin was all placed on him. I want you to look at something. That's our judge. And this screams two things at me. Number one, I am that bad. And if all I can see is just one log, I'm not seeing it all. I'm far worse than I could ever imagine myself to be. I am that bad that the God of the universe had to do that, to go to that extent, to rescue me and save me. And we're all that bad. But we're not just that bad. We're that loved. We're that loved. And he didn't just come to the world to draw the line in the sand and say, I stand with people that are this bad, but to literally to stand in our place. And that's why Paul says, I pray that the eyes of their heart would be open when our eyes can see this. This is what changes us. This is how we go from not judging other people and condemning other people or even judging and condemning ourselves. This is what heals us. And every single one of us right now have our, our own accusers. I mean, think about all the human courts today that pronounce judgments constantly upon us who we are, what we are. They make opinions about us. They critique us. It could be work, school, your church even, your friends, your family, your own heart does it. There's this wonderful subplot in the classic Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Two men fall in love with the same woman. The woman does not marry one of them, whose name is Sidney Carton, but she marries the other one, whose name is Charles Darnay. And the backdrop of this story is the French Revolution. Char Charles Darnay, who marries the woman, is put into prison, and he's going to be executed. He's going to go to the guillotine. Sidney Carton who actually looks a lot like Charles Darnay, actually makes his way to the prison cell to say to this man, you're married 
you have kids. I'm going to switch places with you. To which the other guy responds, what are you talking about? And Sidney Carton literally takes a rock and hits him over the head and knocks him out so he can take on this condemned prisoner's clothes and this condemned prisoner can be set free. Sidney Carton dies in the place of Charles Darnay. In one of the last scenes of the movie, Sidney Carton approaches the guillotine the next day and he's in line with this young girl who thinks she's next to Charles Darnay. And when she realizes it's not Charles Darnay, she turns white and she asks him, are you gonna die in his place? And he goes, shh, yes. And she says, take hold of my hand. I think I can face anything with someone like you. And see, stories like this are what all the best movies are about. And they make millions of us cry. Because who does this? God. God in Christ. The judge left his seat and became the accused. So that Paul can write Romans 8 verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And when our hearts see this, they're healed. And instead of condemning others, we forgive others. You know what Stephen prayed as his accusers stoned him? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The same prayer of Jesus on the cross. And nearby is a man named Saul. It's the first prayer on behalf of Saul's soul. It's probably the moment when Paul's self-righteous, pharisaical heart began to be healed. We can be healed of this. Behold your judge. And if anyone is in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. Let's pray. God, this is how you want to bring heaven to earth. As the hymn says, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. God, would your heaven break in? May your glory fill our souls, healing us of our judgmental, overly critical, our insecurities, our hurts, our self-condemnation, and replacing it with people who can forgive and bless and believe the best about other people for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we stand as we sing this last